So we have started our series on the Psalms, and which will take us through the end of May. Uh, we've not yet covered a Psalm that addresses uh, substantial mental health issues. It's going to change today, and you know, one of the goals of this series is to kind of prepare us for a series in the summer that we plan to do on, on mental health. Um, psalm 22 is a well-known psalm, particularly because of its connections to uh, Jesus Christ and the accounts of him uh, in the gospel. But before I, we jump into the text, I want to share a little bit from a relatively recent article that I read a few weeks ago in The Atlantic uh, dealing with um, what is believed to be America's most significant mental health issue, anxiety. Um, it's called Surviving Anxiety. I posted the link to it on our, on our Realm post for the week in terms of the psalm that we're reading. Um, and in it, the author relates his experience in dealing with, uh, dealing with anxiety since he was two years old. Um, he starts explaining his regimen for overcoming anxiety that he feels when he has to speak publicly. And I'm gonna, so I'm just gonna summarize it. This is right at the beginning. So before he speaks, at a, at, before he has to give like a, a public um, a speech or whatever, at four hours before the event, he takes a half a milligram of Xanax. At one hour, he takes another half milligram, in addition to Indorol, which is a blood pressure medication that lessens the sweating, trembling, nausea, burping, stomach cramps, and the throat and chest constrictions from overwhelming him. He washes these pills down with a scotch or a vodka to slow things down and to, quote, subdue the residual physiological eruptions that the drugs are not able to contain. At 15 to 30 minutes before speaking, he takes a second shot of booze. As he prepares to walk out, he has another Xanax in his pocket, along with another mini-bar-sized mini bar bottle or two of vodka, in case he has the opportunity for a discreet last-minute swig. I quote, If I've managed to hit the sweet spot, that perfect combination of timing and dosage, whereby the cognitive and psychomotor sedating effects of the drugs and the alcohol balances out the physiological hyperarousal of the anxiety, that I'm probably doing okay up here. Nervous, but not miserable. A little fuzzy, but still able to speak clearly. The anxiety-creating effects of the situation, which is his, him publicly speaking, counteracted by the anxiety-decreasing effects of what I've consumed. Now, it's a, it's a long article. He says public speaking is only one source of anxiety for him. He lists a number of phobias and conditions that he has that have plagued him since, like I said, two years old. At 10, he was taken to a mental hospital and referred to a psychiatrist. And then he has two paragraphs listing all of the various therapies and medications that have kind of been the hot trends over the last 30 years, and all, and all of the various alcohols he's tried, and concludes with this, in, with this saying. Here's what has worked. Nothing. He essentially uses the rest of the article to explain how he has come to understand that his anxiety is an asset. And he goes in and shows some of the research that, that's been done on the types of people that use anxiety in the context of their vocations and in their family lives and in their moral lives. 
And I, re- I bring up this article because I, I just really appreciated all of the, it's a very detailed, articulated um, article. And I liked how he just articulated, here's all of the things that I have done to conquer this particular mental health issue, to conquer his anxiety. Um, and so I, I, I bring up that article to raise a question for us. What do we do when we are afflicted? and the mental strain that it causes. The author explains many different ways that our culture has provided to deal with anxiety. And, you know, and he says, and he acknowledges this, and, and he says, you know, um, although none of these regimens have been effective in a long-term way in helping me, he acknowledges that, that medications and therapy have provided relief uh, to many people. But rarely is relief through treatment immediate, long-lasting or comprehensive. And if you read the current literature uh, on medications and on therapies, it, it's, it's kind of hit and miss on their effectiveness. Nor do the contemporary disciplines of psychology and psychiatry provide a guaranteed long-term vision of hope free from the enslaving afflictions and disorders. Plainly, as people, we are still looking for effective ways of dealing with anxiety and other mental health afflictions and the regular everyday life that we experience in suffering. So as we begin this psalm, which is a psalm that is narrating the process of, it's David, the psalm says it's David, Um, it's explaining how he goes through the sufferings of affliction. But we need to ask ourselves, what do we do when we are afflicted? What do we turn to for relief? What regimens have have we created? Do we escape through social media, television, or some other sort of of, of mindless stimulation to be free of and escape our anxiety? Do we abuse substances to chemically alter our bodies and our minds so that we just can kind of check out from what we are experiencing in the affliction? Do we overeat? in order to provide a sense of comfort and and pleasure in the midst of our affliction, which is obviously just temporary. All these are temporary. Do we constantly engage in in social activity? Do we get involved in stuff all the time and we're always around people so we don't feel alone in the midst of our affliction? Do we stay busy in our activity and in our work to avoid what comes to mind when we're not busy? I'm sure... I'm sure that we could all list off at least two or three things that we go to in a pretty reliable way when we make our initial attempts to deal with affliction and mental suffering. So the psalmist, Psalm 22, has a different prescription. And it really comes down to one thing. Seek God. Cry out to him. That's what he says. Now, it, it, that can come across. That can come across as a platitude. It can come across as just this cliche thing. All right, but that's the answer of the psalm. But obviously, with thirty-one verses, we've got a lot of artistry. We've got a lot of life experience. We've got a lot of lived theology that he's bringing into this, to this psalm that I think really brings it to life. And so, when somebody tells you, "Seek God." <laughs> Cry out to him. 
you should at least be able to say and go back to Psalm 22 and say, okay, here's what that means. It's not just a platitude. It's not just a platitude. It's important for us to understand the flow of the psalm. The flow of the psalm, and it's hard to pick up just on an initial reading, but it actually is a suggest. I would say it's a suggested process, or maybe at least uh, a very, a very real process that we go through. Um, and the process is helpful to see. So I want to walk through it. I'm not going to read it again, but we're going to walk through it. So the verse two verses explains and expresses the deep agony that the psalmist is in. There are several things going on here. First of all, we don't know what the affliction is. He starts out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He, he feels abandoned. He feels alone, but he has no, we don't have a clue yet as to what this affliction is. He senses a profound sense of abandonment. He's crying out day and night. We don't know if this is weeks long or months long, maybe years long. We don't know, but it's a long time. It's not just a few hours or even just a few days. He feels like God himself has left him behind, and he doesn't feel like God is making any sort of effort to reach out to him. I want to point out that, that there, are, there are people that have studied the kind of the processes and tools that God uses in our lives to draw us closer to him, to strengthen us and grow us in our perspectives and in our ability to handle suffering. And isolation is one of those tools. One of the key tools that God uses is isolation. So if you're in this place, know that you're not alone. You are with a company of people for millennia that have experienced the isolation from God. So the next three efforts, so this is where David's at, the next three efforts reflects the psalmist, reflects David's efforts to, to retain and grab hold of hope. From his knowledge of the law, remember the, the righteous man meditates on the law of God day and night, so from his knowledge of the law, he remembers that his life is part of a larger story of God's work with the nation of Israel to call out a people and through that people uh, to make a family and to, 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 to demonstrate his wisdom and glory to the world. That's what he was doing with, the, with Israel. That's what he's doing with the church. And so he recalls that God has been faithful to answer the calls of these previous saints over the generations. He recalls that God has been faithful to deliver when people have cried out. So he's speaking of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and the judges, and the whole of Israel's history when God works to save people, when they cry out to him for deliverance. He is part of a community that God has called, delivered, and predestined to glory. And David recognizes that even though he feels like God has abandoned him, he's not going to be left behind. God has never left behind his people. So then he moves on to verses 6 and 8. Seems like he's taking a step back. So you can kind of get throughout the psalm that he's, he's feeling this pain and agony. He makes an effort to retain hope and to grasp hold of it. He's kind of pulled back again into darkness. That's where he's at here. So he remembers Israel's fathers, but then he says, I'm not like them. I'm a worm. I'm not like the heroes of faith. He's being mocked and despised and ridiculed from others. And his, and his sense of self and his self-esteem is now being determined by what others are saying about him rather than who God is calling him to be and how God has made him. They mock him, they scoff at him, and they scoff at his trust in God 
You, you, can, you can almost hear the sarcasm and the scoffing when you read those verses. They're like, ha! Let God deliver him. He's crying out to God. And if, if you think of the imagery from the gospel accounts, that's, they said the same thing of Jesus. Ah! He said that he would be raised up. Let's see that happen. These mockers don't really, obviously, they don't, they don't believe that God is going to show up and do anything real. And, it's, and, and David's like, you know what, I, I, I'm not like those heroes. I'm a worm. Maybe God's not going to answer my call. But then it jumps back, jumps back again. The next few verses express his efforts to retain hope in the midst of this mocking and scoffing. But instead of falling back on, on the knowledge of, that he has of the Bible and of God's history with Israel, he brings up his own life and, and his history of God delivering him in previous parts of his life and times when he has called out to God for help. And so he's using this resource of the word of God and the history that's reflected in there, and he's using his own life. Hey, you know what? God has been faithful. He's been my God since, since my birth. And if I look back on my life, he's really never let me down. And I've gone through seasons like this before. And in this place of regained hope, he cries out once again, 10 verses or 11 verses later, be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Not only, is, not only does he feel like God has abandoned him, he doesn't feel like he's got any support around him from people. The next two verses, 12 through three verses, 12 through 13, two verses, reflect his sense of being attacked by others. He says, the enemies have surrounded me. They are like raging bulls and ravaging lions. And you know, if you read throughout the Old Testament, you see there are places throughout where God promises to deliver them from the wild beasts that eat their children. Okay, we don't have that kind of a thing, thankfully. Um, we deal with with pet allergies in our household, but that's clearly not a, you know, a front that we're afraid of. Um, you know, so he feels the pressure of these enemies, and we certainly feel pressure from people around us that are making our lives miserable. And yet, if we recall David's story, at times he boasts in his ability to kill lions and bears. And he the praises of Israel toward him is that, you know, Saul has killed his thousands, David his ten thousands. Something else is going on here in his life besides the threat of enemies. He's dealt with the threat of enemies before. But whatever's going on inside of him, the threats from the enemies are compounding it. Something other than the physical enemies are weighing him down and making him feel abandoned, threatened, vulnerable, and afraid. Has he committed some sin that is undermining his, his conscience and his confidence? Is his body and mind experiencing the effects of weariness? Just flat out, he's tired. Maybe from a long season of difficult ruling, from military campaigns. Maybe he's in conflict with one of his, I think David had seven wives. Maybe he's in conflict with his children, or the governors of the territories, or his military commanders. If you read through David's story, he's got, all of these things are challenging to him. All of these things have the ability to create a great deal of anxiety and tension within him. The text doesn't give us a sense of what's causing the affliction. 
And I think this is intentional because we read this psalm and we, could, we come to this psalm with all sorts of things that cause us affliction. If it was just, you know, I've got, the, I've got these large armies of 10,000s that are threatening to kill me. Well, none of us can relate to that. But we can relate to conflict with our spouses, with conflict with our children, with, with trouble in our workplaces and the relationships there and the various spheres that we're responsible for. All of us can bring a number of afflictions or just being tired or having uh, mental health conditions. I think David probably would have been clinically diagnosed with some sort of official mental health condition when you see the number of psalms that reflect these kinds of states for long periods of time. In verses 14 through 18, he starts telling us about how he feels, what his feelings are. His energy has left him. He's got no energy left to do anything. He says his bones, the, the joints of his bones have been broken. So he, he can't even stand up. And I would say, like what we would say, I can't even get out of bed. The seat of his affections, his heart, his motivations, his loves, he said it's melted. He has no inner motivation to do anything. No sort of activity. He's got, nothing, he's got nothing to give to do anything. Rather than the vital King David that we see throughout the stories in, in Samuel, we envision a thin, pale, and lifeless waste of a man who's a fraction of his former, stronger self. He sees himself as in the middle of a pack of, of wild dogs who encircle themselves around their prey before they attack and kill it. So again, this is kind of an image that we don't see a lot. Uh, if you've read the book, uh, The Call of the Wild, Anna was telling me about this. She read this a number of years ago with, with one of our sons. Um, the Call of the Wild by Jack Lennon. I, I think there's a new movie coming out with Harrison Ford starring in it. Um, but one of the scenes, so it, the book is from the perspective of the, of the main character, which is a dog. And the dog observes uh, this pack turning on one of its own. I don't know if it's because it's, it's weak or if the dog betrayed him or, or, or whatever, but this pack turns on one. And it just tells of this, of this violent and gruesome effort of this pack of dogs going after one person or one dog and just, you know, shreds it. So I had never seen this, so I get on YouTube, wild dogs circling their prey. And there's videos of this. They go after a wildebeest, and they'll come as a pack against the pack of wildebeest, and they'll look for the weak. They'll look for the one that's struggling. They'll look for the young calves. And it is a, it is a fearsome sight to behold. So if, you, if this was something that you would see regularly in the wild, which I think probably David did, that's what he feels like. That's what he feels like. He feels completely immobile, unable to do anything, move anywhere, and he can't do anything to help himself. He hasn't been eating. He says he can count all of his bones. And in their mocking stares, he feels like they've robbed him of his dignity, as if they stripped him naked, tied his hands and feet, put him on public display, and then sold his clothes, which means he can't get him back, so he's going to be walking around naked. He can walk, but he's not walking. But then in verse 19 he once again bounces back and expresses hope. David cries out to God again for help to save him from his enemies because he has saved him before. 
He's again relying upon the history that he's had with, that he has with God. Seems like it may be taking him longer to deliver this time. A longer sen- it's taken him longer to sense the comfort from God that he is caring about him. The rest of the psalm, so that's about two-thirds. The remaining third is, a, is a, really a, a declaration of praise, a statement that he's going to declare the praises of God once he's delivered, um, and, then a, and, then a, and then praise for the vision that he has of the future kingdom that's promised in the law and the prophets, where all of those who have found refuge in God will finally have their rest, will finally eat their fill, will finally feel full, complete, and happy. They will be prosperous, and they will be worshiping and praising the Lord. He makes a very wonderful and encouraging statement in verse 24, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. If I think back to my weakest most vulnerable, most shameful places in life. I don't want anybody to hear of it. I don't want anybody to see it. And this is why we isolate ourselves. And we feel others isolating themselves from us. David feels abandoned as being mocked and then he is being scorned. They disdain him. But alternatively, God doesn't. He does not despise or abhor the affliction because sometimes our affliction is really pathetic. It's ugly. It's vulnerable. It shows our weakness. But I think that oftentimes we feel so low that we think that God must disdain us, that God must be disappointed us, that God abhors us in our affliction for being weak, for being vulnerable, for feeling afraid and alone, for experiencing the suffering due to our own sin. We feel like, why would God pay attention to me now? I'm in this place because I brought it upon myself. And I think that we all know that even though our closest friends and even family try their hardest to love us, many times we feel rejected and unloved and isolated by them because they don't seem to have the ability to handle our our weakness and our pain. There and we're all like David. There is none to help. But yet God is able to handle this. And David is confident of that. He is able to handle the worst places that David goes. He's able to handle the weakness, the shame, the ugliness, and the hardship of our afflictions. And I think this is one of the most beautiful things in this psalm that it's telling us. We're going to feel like this stuff should not be exposed But God can handle it. God does not disdain it. David knows that God will hear his cries and deliver him. And he states this truth. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. We can't can't read that first verse. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied without the second. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. And then may your hearts live forever. Eventually, those, what David is saying, eventually those who seek God and cry out to him as their refuge, Psalm 2. God is our delight, God is our refuge. That is the emphasis of the beginning of the Psalms. They will find relief. And this idea is may your hearts live forever. It's may the, may the emotions of life and happiness and joy and confidence be with you forever is what he's saying. 
It is, it is expressing the hope that someday this state will be eternal. No longer will our minds and our bodies be like melted wax. And then he concludes this psalm with a message of hope fashioned out of his understanding of the law. He knows that there is a future kingdom that God is building for his people that they will reside in for eternity. And this is a cause of hope. And this is a cause of worship and praise to God. And what will their proclamations and praises be about? It will be about what God has done to deliver his people from affliction. When, that, when the, the last verse says, and he has done it, for he has done it, what has he done? He has saved us from our afflictions. That's what he is, and that's what gives us cause to sing God's praises and to worship him. So here we see, we see somebody stuck. He doesn't feel God's presence, but he's drawing upon resources, his history, his knowledge of the word, for history's sake and for future's sake. And you don't get the sense that he's been delivered in this psalm, but you have the sense that he has been strengthened through this process. And he knows that God will answer his cries at some point. So if, if, we, if we change up a few things, David's experience would be very different. You see key ingredients to going through affliction and seeking God in the midst of it that I think we have to incorporate into our lives. When we experience affliction, what do we do? Here's what David did. He drew up on the law of God and found hope in it. The law of God is real to him. It had an effect on his emotional state. It was able to generate hope in his heart and in his mind. And so the question we have to ask is, does the word of God affect us emotionally so that it changes our hopes and strengthens our energy? That's what the law of God, when I say the law of God, the scriptures, the word of God, that's what it is, the gospel, that is what it is intended to do, to have the power to change where we are at in our emotional states. It connects us, the word connects us to the mind of God and to the spirit of God. Without this reservoir of understanding the word of God, David would be at a great weakness and we are as well. The second thing is David's history. He has a history of walking with God so that the longer we walk with God, the longer we seek God, the longer we experience God's deliverance, the more we can fall back on and say and praise, God is faithful, he has delivered me. And as we grow, the, 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 the afflictions may get worse. They probably will because God gives us what we can handle, the scriptures teach. And as we grow older, as we can handle more, more come upon us to continue to drive us to that place where we cry out for and experience God's deliverance. The third thing I want to ask ourselves is, ever just bring up, David did not go along with the mockers. He was tempted to, and you can see that he's starting to think like that, but he didn't, and he didn't stay there. How often in the midst of our affliction... Does someone suggest prayer and seeking God? And we say in our hearts, or maybe even aloud, what is God going to do now? If he was going to do something, wouldn't he have done it by now? If we do that and we stay there, we're aligning ourselves with the mockers who, eventually, who essentially say, God's not going to do anything. And if that's where 
If that's where we stay, then we, we shut down the process of seeking God. So what does it mean to seek God as we conclude here? Well, the text gives us a few clues. First, it is, a, it is an emotional, mental, mental, and physical effort to pursue God for help in times of trouble. It is just, it's just us taking who we are at the time in an honest way and saying, I am in need of help, God, and here's why. And here's how I feel. That's what it means to seek God. It's just being honest. God already knows it. <laughs> then go to him for help. Second requires an intentional and aggressive effort. It's, it's work. Seeking God is work. Because we have to combat the feelings of the pain. We have to combat the thoughts in our mind. We have to combat the scoffing and the mocking of outsiders. All of which are trying to undermine our trust that God is going to eventually deliver. If we let those voices have their say, boom, it stops us seeking God. So it's a, it's a crying out, but then it's a fight. We have to determine to remain steadfast in our hope even when we don't feel his presence. And I think third thing, there's an intentional effort to not seek some other forms of deliverance. We're gonna see some Psalms that reflect that God has given us gifts and creation, the intent of which is to gladden our hearts and to bring us happiness in the midst of the suffering and toil of life on this earth, all right? It is no sin to pursue and experience God's gifts to have the effects they intended. However, we're not talking about affliction that is not sated by an experience of God's beautiful creation, a robust harvest, a full stomach, a good night's sleep, a glass of wine, or the love of our spouse. These things are all things that the Psalms themselves say are good gifts from God that make us happy. But what we do is we take those and we don't seek God necessarily and we try to find all of our deliverance and happiness in those things. We must resist the habitual pursuits to bring comfort to our afflictions. We have to set aside sexual immorality, gluttony, substance abuse, entertainment, work, money, all of these other things. Good things at some level, but not the ultimate salvation for us in our affliction. We have to direct our hearts and minds and our voices to God. And the psalm is pretty clear. God will answer. And the last thing is that it's not something that we do alone. He feels alone. And oftentimes we feel like we need to isolate ourselves. But David doesn't do that. He envisions himself going before the congregation, opening up this process to them, and declaring God's praises in the midst of the congregation. This does several things. One, it enables people to see and have another experience and history of somebody else's deliverance, which causes them to give praise to God and strengthens their faith that God does answer the prayers of people. And God just really finds a great deal of pleasure in his people coming together and collectively praising him for what he has delivered them from. So we, we, at times we're going to feel alone. At times we're going to need to get away like Jesus did. But we don't stay there. We come back. We enter into the congregation. We tell what's going on. And we sing our praises for God's deliverance together when we see it and experience it together. And ultimately this is what Jesus did. He quotes this psalm, verse 1, 
on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His enemies literally pierced his hands and feet, circled around him to destroy him, tore off his garments, sold them, mocked and shamed him, and eventually killed him. God, Jesus was crying out to God for deliverance in the midst of his suffering on the cross. And I think this means a few things for us. It drives home the truth that Jesus took on our most agonizing affliction, even for him, separation from God. He was God. He was God, but felt completely abandoned by him. So that we could take on the full glory of Jesus. Jesus took that. Second, in being a man, we see Jesus as an example of maintaining hope in God, even in places of great affliction and suffering. He didn't stay there. He scorned, the scriptures say that he scorned the shame and looked forward to the joy. So he too was informed by the scriptures. Jesus was. And he set his hope on that future joy and he endured it. And then he rose from the dead, did not see decay, and now reigns over all things at the right hand of God. So we see in Jesus this same process. But he's not just an example. For those who have believed in Jesus Christ, the scriptures say that we have been given Jesus' spirit. If we've been given Jesus' spirit, the book of Romans has said, as we've seen and throughout all scripture, we have been made alive with him. And we have been given the power to endure and to go through the same thing that Jesus did. And that the presence of his spirit then is this promise and it is this hope. Listen, I can cry out to God. I don't have to give up. I can be delivered. God will do it. Just like the end of the psalm says. Let me pray.